The New Grad Physio podcast is hosted by Andy Barker, consultant MSK and sports physiotherapist, private practice owner and the founder of The New Grad Physio. Having experienced his own rapid rise from student to dream job just 15 months after graduating, Andy knows exactly what it takes to accelerate your skills and fly up the promotion ladder faster than you ever thought possible. Having previously worked in his dream role at the Leeds Rhinos as the head of physio and rehab, Andy now consults with a number of individual elite athletes and within professional rugby, football and dance whilst running his own group of private practice clinics. He started the new grad physio to help student and new grad therapists just like you overcome the specific challenges you face at the start of your therapy career, helping you to dodge the common pitfalls that can cause confusion and overwhelm with your clinical practice and stop you getting the patient results and the jobs or promotions you deserve. This podcast will deliver you actionable advice, will help you make sense of your patient assessments, reason your treatments and patient rehab to get results well beyond your level of experience. You will also discover what you need to do to open doors, to create opportunities for yourself, so you can enjoy the best possible start to life as a new grad physio. So, let's get started. So welcome to the New Grad Physio podcast and this special second episode in this MDT series where I've sort of handpicked various different practitioners from all sort of walks of life and, and practitioners that are working at the top of their respective fields who, you know, you're going to learn so much from during this series. So the first episode in the series, I caught up with top strength and conditioning coach Chris Black and we talked all things sport, rugby to private clients, networking, coaching, and there was loads to take away in that episode that you can take away, whether you're a physio, sports therapist, sports rehabber, to use in your own practice to get better results with the patients or athletes that you work with. If you miss this episode, you can catch it after this one. So that's episode number 86. I know today's guest will be no different and she's going to have loads of great knowledge and advice for you. I know this because, like Chris Black, I've also worked with this guest before in the past, uh, been happy to Know, to work with her very closely over the sort of last um, last couple of months working in um, professional netball and previous to that we, we worked together within the same sort of club so I've seen firsthand the great work that she she does so today's guest is a sports scientist she's also a lecturer uh, in sport and exercise physiology at Leeds Beckett University and is the current head of athletic performance and development at Super League netball team the Leeds Rhinos so a big welcome to the New York Physio podcast Dr Sarah Whitehead Thank you, Andy. Cool. So we'll kick us off, kick us off, Sarah, just for the, the guys listening. Could you tell us a bit more about your journey from maybe your studies to, to what you've done in the past and what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I um, did an undergrad in sport and exercise science down at, at the University of Bath. Um, when I started that degree, um, I always knew I wanted to work in sport. Um, so I opted for doing a, a placement year within my degree. So I actually went across to Australia and did a placement year with the New South Wales Institute of Sport. Um, now, that for me was key because it actually gave me an insight into what sports science was like in the real world and really kind of opened my eyes to what I wanted to do. And that was to, to work with um, high performance athletes. So um, I then having completed my degree in Bath, wanted to do a master's in sport and exercise physiology. So I moved um, back up to Leeds to do that. And I was lucky enough to get um, a work experience 
internship with um, Leeds Rhinos. So I worked alongside Ian Kirk with the um, Leeds Rhinos first team for a season, which then one thing led to another. Then I was fortunate to apply for a, a, a PhD um, with the um, Leeds Rhinos Academy as a sports scientist, carrying out research with them. So, and then as well, alongside that, I then started doing some additional work with Leeds Rhinos Netball when they started their franchise in 2017. Um, so at this point, um, when, well, when they started in 2017, they weren't officially a franchise, um, but I was providing the strength and conditioning support to their athletes. Um, and this has then developed to, um, they gained the Super League franchise this year um, and my position has progressed and developed into being as Andy said, head of athletic and performance and development with, with the Super League squad and overseeing the pathway. Cool, so that's pretty cool. How, how do you find your time out in Australia? Really good, really useful. I mean, the beauty of working in um, an institute of sport was that I got to see experience and got given roles and responsibilities within all disciplines of sports science. So um, I mainly worked within the physiology and strength conditioning department because they were the departments which probably had athletes in most frequently. Um, so, but I also um, did some work with the biomechanists, with vehicle analysis, looking at netballs and landing. Uh, did some work with performance analysis. Um, I actually coded a lot of netball games, went and filmed and coded water polo. So learned a lot about different sports um, and worked alongside the nutritionists. And, and yeah, so it was, a range of practitioners a range of sports so it was really really eye-opening to see what kind of things were out there and what area of sports science I wanted to go into because at that point I knew I wanted to work with athletes and you wanted to work in sport but I didn't really know I didn't have a clear vision of kind of what direction within that I wanted to go into um, and to be honest I actually left N-Swiss thinking going back to my undergrad thinking I wanted to be like pure, like be a sport and exercise physiologist working in the labs um, with probably more endurance athletes. Um, but then as I got like my foot into, into team-based sports, I really enjoyed that. And then, yeah, so that's where I am. Cool. What, what is it about like, I guess, sports science and, and sport that you sort of uh, wanted to get into those areas? Um, so for me, it was, so I played sport um, obviously like my whole life. So I was, I was a very keen hockey player. Um, I really enjoyed the aspect of, of myself, of challenging what you can do um, as, a, as a sports performer um, and pushing and, and driving boundaries of players within that. So, um, yeah, so I think for me, it was, it was all about helping athletes achieve their goals and seeing what the human body can do and how we can support and push that. Cool. Um, I guess when you graduate, I think back to those like sort of first few months, was there anything particularly from your your background and your studies that you felt that university itself hadn't really prepared you for? Guessing walking out into the into sort of the real world. So, I think everyone says this, and because it's true, but like that experience actually applied work applied experience. Um, my degree was very theory based, like the University of Bath Sport and Exercise Science course is. Well, it was when I did it. Obviously, it could have changed. Now it was very, very theoretical. Um, it was challenging in that it pushed you in that level of driving that theoretical knowledge, and it was really important because obviously it underpins everything we do. But there were no modules um, on any applied work and applying this. The most practical modules we had were lab-based, um, like gas analysis and all that that lab-based practical work, rather than um, 
how you communicate and work with athletes and work with other coaches because you can have all the knowledge in the world and when and you can even you can you can apply it but if you can't actually communicate that to the athletes and the coaches and develop those relationships then like it becomes obsolete because you're not able to actually use the knowledge that you have so I think those soft skills of that the university don't necessarily teach but you you gain you gain from getting that experience and being in those environments yeah you sort of took the words out of my mouth and I was going to say it so it's like softer skills that I guess it's it's same with all all professions and you know physios and sports therapists are not going to be no different to, to a sports scientist or an SNC coach or even like a technical coach you, you need to obviously have the ability to get across all the ideas you've got whizzing around in your head and uh I guess that's why sometimes it's, it's finding that balance between, I guess, the knowledge and evidence base and, and being able to apply it, like you're saying, in the, in the sort of real world to try and get the, the best results we can with the sort of athletes and, and even like from a, a patient background in, in private practice um, that you can. Could you tell us, Sarah, a bit about your like current role? So what does, a, I guess, a day in the life of a head of athletic performance and development at a Super League netball team look like? Yeah, sure. So we're actually quite unique in our setup at Leeds Rhinos Netball. So um, we are probably one of the first clubs to um, where our head coach and um, front side have tried to drive this high performance environment. So we actually have the girls in um, training pretty much every day of the week. So so every day except Tuesday and Saturday, they are in training during the morning. So um, day to day. Um, the planning, delivering and prescription of training. So everything from those gym-based um, weight sessions to um, any on-court delivery that I might do. So that will be um, warm-ups to prep them for the um, court session. Conditioning, that obviously varies throughout the season, pre-season and in-season um, on how much we do that. But that day-to-day -day delivery and planning. Um, alongside that, there's the... The screening and well-being part so we do, they do do daily screening partly um they have to do it for a covid perspective but also a general um uh well-being um questionnaire we don't do any physical um objective measures um at the moment within within our environment purely due to logistics and the way that we're set up at the moment so they have a number of questions that subjective questions that they do fill out every morning um, and we also collect and monitor internal and external training loads. So um, we actually have a sports scientist um, at Leeds Rhinos Netball who is doing a PhD with us as well. So Anthony Clark um, manages that data, but we have constant conversations of um, around their load and how it's looking. Have we had a decrease over the last seven days? Can we push them a little bit more this week? How does that balance out with fixtures? Uh, so that's that's constant communication and conversations. And then I kind of oversee the um, the rest of the MDT team in MDT around the nutrition psychology side of it as well. So we've got a psychologist, Ross Shand, and um, nutritionist, Sarah Chandler, who um, work, we work with them as well to provide the best support we can to our Super League athletes. Cool. For the, for the guys listening who maybe not be too au fait with like GPS and monitoring and stuff, could you explain the difference between like internal and external load and what, and how, what that might, what you're measuring, what you're looking for and how that might affect, I guess, your, your planning with players? Yeah, definitely. So um, external load is essentially 
um, what the athlete is doing. So the athlete um, has done X amount of jumps, X amount of change of directions, um, and X amount of accelerations. Now, the internal load is how that individual has responded to that external load. So that can be affected by their um, physiological characteristics, um, their um, life stresses that day, how well they've slept, a number of factors um, will influence how their internal load has responded to it, to the external load. Now, um, we measure external load through uh, microtechnology units. So um, we most often refer to GPS units because that's what we use them for in, like in, for example, in rugby, uh, we use a GPS component because that measures um, displacement. So it will give you a distance covered, high speed running. Um, but it uses the satellites in the sky. So in netball, because we're an indoor sport, we can't utilize that GPS component. Um, in the Suncorp, which is the Australian professional competition, they have, uh, they've got a lot more money, a lot more funding, and some of those environments actually have um, systems set up in the stadiums and their training facilities called LPS, so local positioning systems, so that they can get those measures. We aren't fortunate enough here um, to be able to do that. We are the, actually the only club who wear microtechnology units, so we're fortunate in ourselves to be able to do that. But those units basically give us an indicator of um, load using, mostly using accelerometers. So um, it can give us discrete movement patterns such as jumps, changing directions, but um, the most common metric we use is something called player load, which is actually specific to the manufacturer, but it's an accumulation of load through your X, Y, Z axes. Um, so it takes into account basically every movement that the athlete is doing. Cool, oh, that, that's awesome. And I know from obviously conversations we've had before that netball is generally an area that's quite under-researched. And I know you recently were involved with like a scoping review, weren't you, with looking at some obviously some trying to get some evidence around around netball and I, and I know from the obviously data that you are collecting, uh, particularly over here in the, in the UK, it's, it's going to be probably pretty groundbreaking and obviously like you say, the only team wearing, wearing the units and collecting that sort of data, so hopefully it'll have a big influence. Um, hopefully not only for, for us, at least trying us to make uh, what we do better, but obviously for the, for the game of, of netball as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so that scoping review actually identified there's only across sports science and medicine. So um, there's only 150 studies in netball that we identified. So like which which 150 sounds quite a lot. But when you think if you did that in football, there'd be thousands and thousands. So there's heart there's in the grand scheme of things, not a lot of research in netball at all. The majority of those studies were in injury. So this the sport injury, like injury epidemiology um, specifically. But so the sport science and especially training load is really lacking. There's only three studies that have looked at the training load in netball. And as I said, they've all been in um, super uh, Suncorp. Uh, netball over in Australia so now it's not so and one team so that data for example one study has looked at the training load across a season of one Suncorp netball team um, now we've still used that data in our day-to-day -day practice for example in pre-season we know that a a quarter of netball at the Suncorp Super League um, at the Suncorp uh, netball competition in Australia uh, has an average play load, for example, of around eight meters a minute, eight, eight arbitrary units per minute. 
So we actually use that data in pre-season to try help guide the intensity of our training drills. So because there's no other data in netball, there's no data for the Super League competition. So we don't know we don't know how it differs to our competition. However, it was the only data we had to be able to use it as a marker of um, are we preparing our girls for match play um, from a, like how can we use the data to help that and and that's that's the data that we had available but as you say hopefully after this season we know more about the game and we know more about the super league game and we can use that going into next season yeah and i think from from like i'm just thinking from a physio sort of lens it that makes it quite hard as well i think in many respects that's probably why i've leaned on you quite a lot in terms of some a lot of the end stage rehab stuff because there's not really a lot of information even within the team that we're working at together at the moment with the lead rhinos netball team, but even within the game to know, I guess, what the end uh, product is. So when players are playing games, there's not a whole host of data. So you can, I guess, when you're designing a rehab program and a player's returning from injury, you almost reverse engineer it, that you know what you guess you're aiming for and what they usually do in a game or they're, they're asked to do when they're playing, you know, back-to-back -back games or the weekends like we're doing this season, which is pretty tough. If we don't really, if we're not really clear on what that is, it makes it quite hard you know, more, dif more difficult definitely to, I guess, the programme, particularly end stage rehab to, you know, for us to go to, to Dan, our coach, to say these players definitely ready to go back in because we, we guess we're, we're gauging what we've done in rehab and they're reconditioning to what they're actually going to do in games, which is, again, if we've not got that data, makes it almost, uh, do, doing it with like a blindfold on almost. Yeah, definitely. And I think like the, the data we get isn't flawless in that, so the payload, the date, the unit payload, um, because it's an accumulation of all movements, it's hard to actually as well break down into what are those discrete movements. So like how much of that is um, through running, for example, center, um, because every time you step, obviously you get a load, a vertical load. So that in play, uh, running highly influences payload, but so a center may have a very high payload, but other positions will also have a high payload, even though they don't run as much. So it's accumulated through different actions. Um, and I think we need more developments in technology. So the units can give us discrete movement patterns. So it can tell us number of change directions, number of jumps, but the validity of those hasn't, we haven't, there's been no studies that have investigated the validity of those movements. So that goes back, like goes to the, the, the evidence informed practice like we could use those metrics but if we rely on them too much and they aren't actually telling us what we want what we think they're telling us are we are we doing the right thing if that makes sense so um i think it does need to be de developments in technology um to assist us more or and or further research to validate those metrics to to guide our practice and um as you say end stage rehab further yeah no i certainly agree with that so having done a fair bit, Sarah, in, in loads of different sports, both when you were studying and, and since you graduated in rugby and netball and, and, and various other places, what, what would you say your, your highlights have been so far in, in your career, whether that's yeah, obviously your academic background or maybe some of the teams or athletes that you've worked with? Um, so I think academic-wise, an easy one, because completing my PhD was definitely the, the highlight there. So um, that was a good, obviously, three years um of hard work so that was um good to get that over the line um and then career-wise i think i'd say kind of two um main kind of events or kind of things so with um working with the academy so i was with the academy as a sports scientist for four years 
Um, so within that time, you see obviously a lot of players come through and the whole purpose of the academy is to progress players into the first team environment. And that is the purpose of it there. So when you actually see players who progress up, but not only progress up, but have a really big impact and get repeated contracts, it's, that's really quite rewarding, even though you might have had just the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest impact in that, in the grand scheme of everything. It's um, just a really nice thing to see that those players are improved because that's what we're there to do at the end of the day no matter how minute our impact is it's still having an impact and helping those players achieve their potential and, and their goals so um like Mikolai Alexsky with um, the, the first team so um he was through the academy when I was there and recently like uh, Jack Broadbent who's recently um progressing up um, I worked with him throughout his academy um quite closely so that's always like really nice to see um and then our first game uh, for Leeds Rhinos Netball against Celtic Dragons. So that was being an inaugural franchise um, is quite special in itself because every, everything that happens first time, first time is exciting. Um, but to get that, to go at first game, get the win, win by 30 points and just see the girls out there putting all that hard work. We had a really long pre-season. So we started pre-season beginning of October um, and didn't start the season until mid-February so it was a long pre-season they put in a lot of hard work a lot of grind it was really just was really good and rewarding to see them actually out on court and yeah and putting all the hard work to practice yes yeah, so I, I so I sort of missed all that then I had just kept came into the season and already started but um yeah it's, and it's very different isn't it netball to a lot of the sports where you know typically even a sport like rugby senior rugby you could get a pre-season as short as like four weeks given you know when the season may maybe finish maybe sometimes sometimes you know eight weeks or so it's not particularly a long time and, and they are quite short condensed seasons because I know they have the international stuff you know sort of either side of the, the domestic season so it's obviously very different I guess from maybe the time you've spent in in say rugby in the past so how, how did you maybe with a long such a long pre-season and again players again if you could look back to last year you've had players there who've not done much in the way of netball or any form of training because of Covid how did you how did you again again probably manage that lengthy pre-season and off the back of probably being players being pretty inactive because of the pandemic yeah it was tricky um so we we had actually certain guidelines in place from england netball around um covid anyway so we did have to train in bubbles for the first few weeks and um, so that did naturally restrict what we were doing um anyway however uh, we bet Dan and I, um, Dan Ryan, head coach, and I, we sat down and we basically kind of came up with this plan of um, how we'd progress the um, the intensity of training, the volume, and also um, how chaotic the training was. Um, so, I you can you can plan as much as anything, but then obviously things you have to be able to adapt your plan. But I am um, we planned out a week so that we had a change direction day and acceleration day um and a more longer conditioning day um so we could gradually build up um those components um without overloading everything too soon so um we did spend a lot of time back to basics so for example even my court warm-ups i actually end up doing i i I do a 15 minute warm up because I'd focus a lot on just basic movement patterns and getting them back into that um, rather than just getting them just warm them up to play to get back on court. It was a time to um, get them moving well again. Um, and again, in the gym, 
yeah, we, we stuck to hypertrophy for quite a while to just build them back in. Um, and I also thought, so not only had they been on stand arm for COVID, not been able to train, for most of the girls, it was actually, in, in pre-season, all of them, because our England players were with England. So all of our players had never been in an environment, a, a full-time training environment. So not only had they not been training for six months, the, the, the training gym three times a week, court sessions three or four times a week was also a big shock to them. So it was, it, it was just managing what we could, a lot of communication with players to see how they were, see how they were responding. And whilst I had this, this, I thought it was this brilliant plan of how we were going to progress it. And it was, it came down to getting to know the players more importantly than anything else. And then how they responded individually to that. Yeah. And I know from uh, some conversations that we've had, there's a, even within that team, you're saying that like for a lot of the, a lot of the girls, you know, training at that intensity and, and the, the number of days a week was a, was a brand new thing. And then we, even within that group itself, there was, there was some players there and some players in the team who'd, barely set foot in the gym before so then to go to train you know three times uh three times a week in the gyms you know probably pretty daunting for those types of players and mm. some clearly who who you know have have a decent sort of training background and gym gym history and stuff so how, how did you maybe manage those those individual uh, i guess challenges really yeah so that was definitely a bit of an eye-opener so even so there was one player who i knew did knew coming in um, had no gym like very little gym experience so um, and she actually came in later in the pre-season so um, I spent a lot of time with her individually um, in just stripping everything right back um, and just kind of teaching what basic movement patterns were um, but then there was other players who had been in Super League franchises for years four or five years um, but never really done a consistent gym program um, because of the way that other franchises might work and that they have to say that the gym sessions are optional because of people traveling, the training times. And also she was just honest and said, I've never bought into it. I've never enjoyed it. Um, this is the first time I've actually enjoyed doing it and I've seen so many improvements. And then obviously that's why she continues. So um, it was tricky at first because whilst the netball squad isn't big, so there's... In pre-season, we had 10 players because our, we had two Roses players, um, uh, one international who hadn't come over yet um, and another international who we hadn't actually signed yet. So we only had 10 players in pre-season. So it's not big. However, when you're getting to know a group of players, it's still quite a lot, quite, quite a lot of players. So um, it was challenging in that respect of, of where I spent my time because it was it was easy to spend the time with the individuals who struggled and leave uh, and not focus on the individuals who no, not who may look like they find that kind of side of it easy um so so yes yeah, so it was just I had to really balance where I was spending my time with which individuals and make sure that um yeah there wasn't any there was clear communication with everyone and there was full trust in what we were doing and um the sessions that they had essentially yeah, and I've seen, seen the girls uh, rip into the gym stuff, so they're, they're clearly on, on board with that stuff. And we've got fortunate to got a really, obviously, really good um, gym tiers, haven't we, at the at Leeds Beckett Uni, which is obviously just been just been built. It's brand spanking new, and uh, 
probably the best gym you could uh, you could ask to use, isn't it, really? Yeah, especially in COVID times, because it meant, um, because there's, well, there's eight racks, no, 12, well, 12 racks, basically. So it meant that everyone always had a rack each. There was no need to share equipment. So we didn't have to worry about that side of it from a COVID perspective. So they could just get on with sessions, have a rack each. Um, and rather than having that as another impacting factor um, upon everything else. Yeah, cool. So I guess transitioning from rugby to like netball, obviously clearly two very different sports and work, working in the academy in rugby with, with the lads and then working obviously with, with netball females, what have been the challenges with, I guess, that transition? Um, so I think female athletes are definitely obviously have different challenges um, regards to their physiology, um, their biomechanics, how they move. However, I think it's taken into consideration, um, for me, a lot of it was um, they, they have quite different life stresses. So um, getting to know the players from that respect, how that affects them, how that affects their training. Um, but from a sport perspective as well, they're, they're, they're so, so different. Whilst you think like, yeah, it's a team sport, intermittent in nature, um, the, the rules of netball um with the footwork and and the confined space make it yeah a very very unique unique sport so um i had to learn a lot about the sport transitioning from rugby to netball and how um even like the microtechnology and it's how we can use that data in a different way um but also how, how i need to physically prepare these players differently to obviously it's a completely different game to rugby um and how how prepare them yeah, it's definitely been an eye opener for me working in netball, having knowing nothing about netball at all. So that's why I've uh, mentioned it already. But leaned on you quite a lot with uh, a lot of the like in stage rehab stuff and even just learning. Yeah, and what I'm watching it. Obviously, it's unfortunate at the moment. There's no like fans and supporters at the the venues and things. But obviously, being really up close watching like courtside, it's it's a pretty phenomenal sport. Like how how athletic they are and the amount of decelerations and change of directions and, and how intense and quick it is. You, I don't think you get an appreciation for it um, on TV, do you? And then when you sat, sat courtside? No, definitely. Um, and I think as well, and then and this, I guess this links to, yeah, I think this links to males and females as well, in that I think the demands of the sport are so unique, but I don't think, I think the way that we train them and the way that, well, the way that I kind of focus their weight sessions is very simple because a lot of these players actually their biggest um development point is strength like which is a general female athlete issue anyway a lot of them just aren't strong enough yeah there's the stability um issue as well but a lot of it is just basics basic strength development um so some sports and, and maybe some athletes and and if it was males it might be differently you might be able to do it might be that you did, did different things um more sport specific movement patterns but I think because of the well the nature of the sport the female athletes they have a good training background but not an excellent training background um for me it's it's yeah it's it's very unique but that doesn't mean we can't stick to basics on a lot of things no I see big correlations between the work I've done in like female football and I think where where netball is 
maybe now and given obviously pushing the envelope with the professional game and stuff is probably where like women's football was maybe four or five years ago where the, and again a lot of it's to do with logistics and team setup and things like that but the I guess and it's it's sort of voiced by what you were saying before about the varying different uh, gym exposures that some players have had even at the sort of top level in the sort of past where you know there's not always been a massive emphasis on the gym stuff and the, and the, the strength stuff it's always been just getting them on court and practice netball but you know, clearly, you know, from a conditioning point of view to be able to perform well. But I guess, again, looking through a physio lens, there's such a, a big impact the gym stuff can have on, on injury prevention stuff. And again, it's not, if you watch a game of netball, you can see why there's so many, say, like calf Achilles problems, like, you know, tendinopathies, even ruptures, ACL injuries and things like that. And, um, you know, doing the, doing the gym work and putting the hours in, in there over pre-season and in-season clearly has a big can have a big impact, not only on performance levels and their ability to get around the court and, and you know, sort of perform at the level they want to do, but also trying to be robust as they can to try and prevent those, you know, particularly those big injuries like your, you know, your ACL injuries, which are, are so prevalent in, in sports like netball. Yeah, definitely. I think I've not really noticed this as much with the Super League girls, but I've worked, so I've worked with the, as I said, Lee's well since 2017. Um, and so for the first, until this season, um, I was with, with the pathway. So we had under 19s and 17s, um, and I did a little bit with under 15s. Um, and what I found working with those groups, so I had them twice a week for, for an hour gym. It was very difficult to get, the, not all of them, but the majority of them to actually buy into what we're doing in the weight sessions. Um, partly because, and, and this was particularly evident in when we went to COVID lockdown, all they wanted to do was like hit training and stuff that they thought was going to bend, like they, they thought that would benefit them more on court than doing like lifting weights, essentially. Um, and they also had um, body image side of it which a lot of them question like will this make me bulky will this blah, blah, rather than thinking about the actual performance benefit of it um so that was a uh, in the early days working with the pathway and still now um i don't deliver to the pathway in itself but um myself and cam owen who delivers to the pathway we we track we make sure that this gets across to to all players that um how important that strength development um and that side of it is um, because that's what's going to benefit them long term, rather than how many calories they've sh their Apple Watch shows after doing a hit session. <laughs> yeah, so more uh, mm. more gym based stuff and less less your weights. Yeah, yeah. Because we also find that like with the with the pathway athletes, they have such a they have a very high training load. So it's like rugby union. In fact, in the fact that um, so they're with Leeds Rhinos netball. They also play club and they also play school. So they end up doing so much netball and so much on feet. It's actually really quite hard to get a good phase of physical development and strength development in because they're fatigued when they come into the gym. They might have to miss gym sessions because they're traveling to the session from the travel two hours to get there. They've had school netball, traveling two hours to come to a Leeds Rhinos court session and they miss gym. So there's all these factors which... Um, influence um the development at that younger age group which you can see when they come up to that super league level in my opinion yeah so we know i guess this feeds in quite well what i was going to ask you next about so we know from like 
the academia and evidence that say like a, a good strength background is really important for, for sports performance and also, you know, trying to prevent some, some injuries. So I guess from your background, having a really strong like academic background, how, how do you take the skills like from that background and your knowledge base, if you like, and actually apply that? Because there's sometimes a big disconnect between what the science says and then what happens in the, I guess, the real world. So I guess what, what are your main challenges around that and how do you, um, I guess, get that across to your, to your athletes? Yeah, so I definitely think, so I definitely prefer the term evidence-informed practice rather than evidence-based practice, because I think when we think evidence-based practice, everything needs to be based on evidence. However, I do think um, there are certain times when, when using the evidence and the research isn't perhaps realistic. So, sorry, the dog's just asking to go out. <laughs> That's cool. No, I think it's really, uh, really like, yeah, what, what Sarah's sort of talking about in terms of like the science and application. So do you want to, do you want to carry on with that, Sarah? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so there were, I think you need to have a solid understanding of the science and the research out there. Um, but you also have to have the ability to respond to the environment in front of you and what's happening. So, um, for example, if you were thinking like from a, I guess a, a physiology conditioning perspective, um, the, the theory and the, the research of training studies might show that for repeated sprint training, the three sets of six repetitions, work rest ratio of one to five with two minutes between sets, for example, might might have a, will, has been shown to have increased um, repeated sprint ability. However, the likelihood of having a 30 minute session purely for 30 minute period within a within a court session purely for conditioning without any ball is is quite slim so i think it's important that you take evidence base but then apply it in how you can in your environment um however there are certain times i do think that you need you need the evidence base behind it so for example as i said earlier with the microtechnology units I don't use, whilst the units give us change in direction number, jump number, I don't use them because I don't, we don't have any data on, on the validity and reliability of them. So I, we can't use them confidently. Um, however, and things like, so there's been a, like, so development of a new test, for example, um, it's all well and good. However, if there's not the science behind it on, on the reliability, validity, we don't necessarily know exactly what it's testing, but also we don't know um, the variability within the test. So if an athlete improves, we don't know if that is just error in the test or whether it is um, a true improvement. So we need research and evidence beh based behind certain things to allow us to make inferences and informed practice however some sides of it need to be taken with a pinch of salt and applied to your own environment in different ways yeah so i think that evidence informed practice is probably the yeah just obviously sums it up very well doesn't it taking taking what we know from the evidence and being guided by that but again taking into account the team you are the athletes the things that are going on we, we both know like sometimes if a team's not playing very well the coach is going to want to do more technical stuff on, on court or on pitch or whatever sort of sport you're working in and being, I guess, adaptable, if that's the right word, to, mm -hmm. to those things. So you, 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 we are yeah, being guided by the science and, and the evidence, but obviously we need to, to apply it. And I think 
this is exactly the same in the, I guess, in the physio world where, you know, some therapists sit very one way as in all evidence-based sort of practice. And then some that are totally not evidence-based, a lot of, you know, a lot of say manual therapy techniques and there's no evidence base behind them, but they are, can be really effective. Um, so I think having, uh, I guess, a broad perspective of the evidence and knowing what the evidence is, is sort of informing us is, is important, but obviously then being able to apply it to the right person at the right time is again, a, a skill in itself. Uh, and again, I know one that a lot of therapists listen to this will, will sort of know firsthand how, how hard that can be. I guess Sarah, so from your background and clearly you've obviously been able to work with some great teams and have some great, create some great opportunities. What, what is it you think that you've maybe done differently to others that has enabled you to do that? I'm sure there was very, I'm sure there's loads of, you know, practitioners you, you sort of studied with and know of who, who would love to have done some of the jobs that you've done. So what maybe do you think has set you apart from those guys? And I know you're really modest, so yeah, I don't know how you're going to answer this one, but. Um, I do think, I do think part of it is being in the right place at the right time with the right opportunities coming up and, and you being there. I would never have, um, when I was finished my undergrad, I never would have thought I'd end up in rugby league, for example. Um, that opportunity came up. I grasped the opportunity um, and I've got a bit like, I'm very, I like to do every everything at high quality. So, and I think, and even that might not necessarily always work out at necessarily the quality I want it to, but I'll always try for everything to be at the high quality that I want it to be at. So I think even the small, so for me, even those small opportunities, I made sure that I make, tried to make a good impression. Um, and then I think even if it's making a good impression on one person, that has a massive impact. So for example, um, the Ryan's head of performance, Jason Davidson, I made a good impression on him. He was the one who said to me, um, would you like to do the strength and conditioning for these rhinos netball? And I said, as like an additional work, like he didn't go out for Abbott. He asked me because he trusted me and he, um, I guess, believed in me. So I said yes to that. And then that was obviously now led to this position where I'm in because I've then maintained those relationships with any kind of, of any the staff within netball build trust and relationships and and as well with the players and then they give good feedback and it, I think it's just a cycle of yeah just trying try my best with everything and not everything always working out but making the most of every opportunity I've had yeah I think that's what it is I think I um so I think like the right place at the right time it almost infers like a bit of luck but I always think about luck being the product of um opportunity plus like preparation so clearly to, to get an opportunity there has to be an opportunity there and and you can make opportunities for yourself like like what you've done there and, and obviously putting your best foot forward and other people involved within the wider club obviously different sport but within the club have seen you doing a great job so I guess that's yes that's you almost creating your opportunity so you were the first person that you know the main man asked do would you be interested in this role because he'd seen you work you know day to day and do a great job with the athletes that you work with but also being I guess the prepared part is almost then it's great and if you can make an opportunity or opportunity comes up but you need to obviously be, be prepared and have the the competency if you like and the skills to be able to do that role otherwise you could have started with that, that role and not done very well and then uh, obviously sport as fickle as it it, it can be sometimes um, particularly sport yeah if you, if you don't do a great job you might might find yourself out the door faster than you were uh, than you got in the door so I think yeah I think 
yeah, create the opportunities are, you know, you can create them yourself, but I think being prepared and obviously you've done a great job previously. So that's why obviously you've got, got given um, the opportunity, I guess, for, for, for greater roles and, and obviously you, uh, you well deserve it. So cool. So I guess to, to get towards the back end of the, the podcast, again, fast or rewinding back to, I guess, the start of your career, if you're going to give any advice to like a student or a new grad, uh, whether that was a sports scientist, whether that was a, maybe a physio, maybe someone who wanted to work in a practitioner in sport, what sort of tips and advice would maybe you give them? So I think a big one, um, because I've heard people kind of struggle with this, um, is don't pigeonhole yourself to one sport. I think a lot of people go into sport think, oh, I, might w- I want to work in football. But often as well, and you, do, you see more and more now, to get experience, you need to have experience. So, um, like, literally, I think I saw a, an internship advert and it said you had to have, like, two years of experience to do an internship, like, an unpaid job. And it's like, so if you pigeon your, so pigeonhole yourself to one sport, you're completely narrowing any opportunities. So I think it's expanding those horizons of different types of experience. So it might not necessarily, you might want to be a strength and conditioning coach, but you might need to get some, some experience in the lab, or you might have to get some experience in sport, like more just the data and sports science side or vice versa. So I think it's broadening horizons on and keeping your, yeah, your eyes open around different types of experience and within different sports, different age groups. Um, because at the end of the day, experience, experience is key. Um, and then within some of those jobs, you might have to do the not very nice jobs, which aren't that glamorous. Um, but it's it's getting that done because it will be worth it in the long run. Yeah, no, I, I'd certainly agree with that. I think if you'd have asked me at the start of my career, I, I just wanted to work in rugby league because that's what I, I knew and grown up with and played. And 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 to now, I'm still doing a little bits in rugby league now, like consultancy wise, but like predominantly working as a consultant in football and netball. I wouldn't have in a million years told a guest that I'd be doing that but like you say um I think to broaden your horizon I think I think Chris Black mentioned it on the last podcast as one of his I guess tips to um to again people start the start of their journey wanting to work in sport and how much you can learn from from other sports uh, and I think also a lot of that's not only your practical skills but also those those like softer skills that you spoke about before and working with various different different people you get various different personalities um which which can I guess everyone's team of a team of athletes there's so many different personalities within that group but you get very different I think personalities in different sports too and I think being able to adapt your approach to the different people and um, having that experience in different sports and dif- with different people can be can be massively you know advantageous yeah definitely what are your plans Sarah for the future so obviously you've got I know you've got a fair bit on both in the academic world and, and sports world what's what's on your plate in the next uh, weeks and months um so finishing the season well first of all with netball so we've got um six no we've not we've got eight weeks left ish of the season um so and for us that's gonna be a big hurdle because from now on all our games are down at london so that's adapting again it's something we've not done before to franchise it's something the girls have never done before because it's a new thing in that it's a centralized venue so they've never had to do trips every weekend away so adapting and learning from that and i guess the short term um, and then, and I guess in the near future, like my kind of focus from a, an academic and um, sports science point of view is 
I really want to try to drive that high performance nature of netball. Um, within Leeds Rhinos um, netball, of course, first of all, I think we can build on so much more on what we did this season without obviously without even increasing any training times or anything like that. I think there's so much more we can give and do. Um, but to say netball is one of the most popular female sports in the UK, as we just as we touched on earlier, like it's it's so under-researched, underfunded, and I think there's so much more we can do as researchers and academics and practitioners to help drive the sport forward. Like they won the Com Games, like last Com Games won gold, but that hasn't quite filtered down yet. So they went from winning gold to we've got a semi-professional netball league where girls train twice a week on a Tuesday, 10, Tuesday and Thursday, eight till 10. So I think there's so much more the sport can push to and give and it's just kind of yeah helping provide I guess a bit more of an evidence base to that and working alongside England Netball and a few projects um on how we can drive standards research and yeah everything forward cool um so if listeners wanted to find a bit more about you Sarah see what you're doing I know you I know you're a keen runner you're always uh posting some decent stuff when you're running stuff and obviously sharing a lot of uh, academic stuff as well on your your accounts and the both work that you're involved with in other sort of practitioners where could people find a bit more about you say on, on twitter or instagram so twitter um on instagram i think instagram but twitter's definitely sarah r whitehead is my twitter handle and i'm, I'm pretty confident it's that on instagram as well <laughs> That's um, cool. yeah sarah r whitehead nice and simple cool if you if you get stuck and you can't find sarah just give, give me a shout and then i'll uh, i'll post you in the right uh, right direction um I will say, Sarah, thanks. I really appreciate your time. I know you've had a pretty busy day today. We were working together this morning and then you had to shoot off to do some teaching and then jump on jump on here to record this podcast. So I appreciate it. It's a pretty busy day and we're recording this on a Friday as well when everyone likes to finish a bit earlier. So uh, I do really appreciate your time. And I know there's loads in there for the guys who'll be listening that can sort of take away and learn you know, learn a lot about, you know, I guess, the non, non-physio stuff that goes on in sport and how, how physios work together with other staff and... I guess some of the challenges you've had in the past and all your your learns and experience that the guys here will take take so much away from that. So I really appreciate your time and jumping on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Cool. So just to finish off, um, if you do want to reach out to Sarah, that's cool. Just if you can't find her, just reach out to me. Um, Really appreciate your time jumping on board the New Guard Physio podcast. All the episodes and all the links to the previous episodes you can find at newgraphphysio.com. You'll also find links there to all my other blogs and podcasts and a few other sort of resources up there, so check that out. So if we don't speak to you um, soon, I'll catch you on the next episode of the New Grad Physio podcast. Thanks for listening to the New Grad Physio podcast. Before you head off, I just wanted to make sure you did not miss this. Alongside his podcast, Andy posts a weekly blog on his website, www.newgradphysio.com. You can access all his blogs and loads more resources like his recent PDF, The 5 Breakthrough Steps to Confidently Treat the Shoulder Right Every Time, Avoid Mistakes and Stop You Feeling Less Adequate Than Other New Grads. This is Andy's most popular resource and has already been accessed by thousands of therapists just like you. To get a copy of this PDF, or to get more information about Andy's upcoming courses or find out more about his new grad physio membership, head to www.newgradphysio.com. Have a great day and we will catch you on the next podcast episode.